Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Hi, my name is Evan Baines and I'm an emergency medicine physician and a former 18 Delta. I'm currently the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group Battalion Surgeon. And Dennis asked me onto the podcast today to give a presentation based on the one that I gave recently at the Society of Critical Care Medicine's course for non-critical care providers. I'm going to start the podcast with a disclaimer. Please always operate within the limits of your abilities and your scope of practice. Kids, please don't try this at home. So this isn't a podcast about how to put a tube in somebody's trachea. That's a skill you're really only going to learn first with simulators and then with real patients. What this podcast is, is a discussion of how to manage an airway safely. And these are my goals for you today. I want to discuss the indications for definitive airway management. I want to discuss warning signs that an airway might be difficult or dangerous and what to do about them. I want to talk about pace planning for airways, which is something that you should always strive to do. I want to discuss all the critical equipment to have on hand for airway management. And then I want to discuss confirmation of airways in a resource-constrained environment. I'm also going to add in there that for most of us who spend a lot of time in emergency departments, when we say airway management, most of us are thinking about rapid sequence innovation. But this audience for this podcast is largely made up of medics, and for many or most of you, RSI is not an option and really not a good choice. So if you catch me saying innovation, I want you to substitute in whatever your airway management strategy of choice is. Because again, this isn't really a podcast about a procedure. It's about a thought process related to airway management. Now, there are a great many teachers and mentors that I could thank for the content that I'm putting out for you today. But I do want to give a special credit to Dr. Scott Weingart and his MCRIT podcast and website because a lot of the principles that I'm talking about here are things that I learned from MCRIT and now I'm trying to present in a focused way for you. So I'm going to start by talking about why we manage airways and how urgently we need to manage airways. So I've gone through a lot of different kinds of training uh, since I started out in medicine back in the early 2000s as a young 18 Delta. And I think sometimes this is not explained very well, so I'm going to try a different approach. I'm going to give you three basic indications for definitive airway management. These are all sort of groups of indications, and each one carries a different level of urgency about getting the airway. So the first, the airway is physically interrupted by something. The second, loss of airway tone. And then the third is that the patient requires a ventilator. So the first of these indications is that the airway is physically interrupted. Now, this is going to be the most familiar to most medics because what we're talking about here is things like massive maxillofacial trauma, which is the classic indication that our medics are trained for airway management. This also includes swelling of the airway structure, so angioedema, big swollen tongue, uh, epiglottitis, anything that's physically obstructing the airway due to swelling or other deformity. This also includes foreign bodies and fluids in the airway, like hemodemesis or massive emesis when the patient just really can't protect their own airway. So 
All of these indications, what they have in common is that the patient cannot exchange gases from the outside of their body to the inside of the body. The circuit's interrupted. There's no way to get air in or carbon dioxide out. So these patients need an airway right now. These are the patients, this is why we put the A so far up in the March algorithm, because these patients only have minutes at best. And this group also includes patients who are headed in any of these directions in a hurry. So patients that were afraid they're going to lose their airway for one of the aforementioned reasons. The second group is the group of patients I call loss of airway tone. Now, these are the patients we talk about less than eight intubate in ATLS. These are the patients that are intubated for decreased mental status or inability to protect their own airway or loss of gag reflex. And they all have in common that we're afraid that the loss of tone in their airway is going to cause their tongue to fall in the back of their throat and obstruct their airway. Or these are the patients that were afraid that their own secretions, their own saliva, they're not going to be able to gag or swallow and clear their secretions on their own. Uh, we're afraid that they're going to aspirate on their own secretions. So we place an airway for quote unquote airway protection. And what you need to know about these patients is they need an airway because you want to be able to walk away from them. When I do procedural sedations in the emergency department, it's a pretty common thing that you'll give the patient enough sedation so that you can reduce a shoulder dislocation, for example. And once I get that shoulder back into place, they have a whole lot less pain than we started with. And removing that pain stimulus means that the balance of sedation versus pain tilts in the sedation direction, and they sometimes go a little deeper than we'd otherwise like. And not infrequently, these patients will have little periods of apnea that we'll track on our entitled CO2, and we'll recognize this, and all we have to do is a jaw thrust. This is not a type of patient that is going to lose their airway catastrophically where you can't get it back. Almost all of these patients are manageable with a simple jaw thrust or a head tilt chin lift. We're not putting it in airway because we're afraid of some catastrophic failure. We're putting it in airway so that we can leave the room or leave the area and worry about other things rather than having to hover over them like a mother hen, making sure that they don't obstruct and go apneic. So especially if these patients are critically ill, take your time on this airway management. Don't walk away from them. Don't leave them unmonitored and unsupported. But you can often do a lot of other stuff to optimize your situation before you have to manage that airway. So the final group of patients doesn't have anything wrong with their airway at all, and they may ultimately lose airway tone. But the real reason they need an airway is because we need a circuit between their lungs and the ventilator. And the airway is not really the issue, it's just a vehicle. So the urgency with which you have to approach these patients really depends on how quickly they're decompensating and what sorts of temporizing or optimizing measures you can do in the meanwhile. So the example for these patients would be your ARDS patients or your hypercapnic COPD patients. Uh, these are patients who either because of inadequate oxygenation or inadequate ventilation just need to be put on the vent. 
And the only reason we might lose an airway in these folks is because the medications that we're giving so that they'll tolerate the ventilator might cause them also to fall into that loss of airway tone group. So summarizing that last section, we're talking about three basic indications for definitive airway management. The airway being physically interrupted, the patient losing tone in their airway, or the patient requires a ventilator. So in this next section, I'm going to talk about conditions that predispose to a difficult or a dangerous airway. Now, when I was learning about airway management, either early on in my medical career or early on in my career as a physician, I'll be honest that I sometimes blew off airway assessment because my attitude was always that, well, if the patient needs an airway, they need an airway. So why do I care if it's going to be difficult? Because I'm just going to have to get that darn airway either way. But as I've gained more experience, what I've learned is that the conditions that predispose to a difficult airway should prompt you to change your threat posture. And what I mean by that is if this is going to be a difficult airway, and I know it's going to be a difficult airway, I'm going to marshal all of the resources I can up front and be prepared to shift very rapidly into backup plans. Now, every airway is going to have a backup plan, but the wrappers are going to come off and the skin's going to get marked if I'm knowing ahead of time that it's likely to be a very difficult airway. So what are the conditions that make an airway difficult or dangerous? Well, first we're going to talk about conditions that make the airway procedure itself difficult. And the first and probably the one that we run into the most frequently is obesity. And unfortunately, we still run into this in the active duty military community, even though you might hope you wouldn't. And obesity can make airway procedures difficult for a lot of different reasons. Uh, you have more tissue that you have to move out of the way if you're coming in from the top, or if you're doing a surgical airway, you've got a lot more tissue to go through to get to the trachea where you need to be. Obesity can also make positioning difficult. Uh, these patients need special techniques to get their airway lined up in such a way that you can manage it safely. Another one that a lot of folks don't necessarily think about is neck immobility. So, you know, certainly most people intuitively realize that a patient in a C collar is going to be a difficult airway. But I think the scariest airway I had in training was a code blue where I didn't realize until afterwards that the guy had recently had a four or five level cervical fusion and his neck just wouldn't move and it was almost impossible to get a view. And these patients are out there and they're out there in the military community. I know because I'm one of them. I have a cervical fusion, not a four level, thankfully, but my neck is probably a little less mobile and I might be a little bit more of a difficult airway than most. So if you happen to see a scar on the front of a person's neck, I wonder if they've had an ACDF and this could be a warning sign to you that you might be running into a little bit of trouble on that airway. The short neck and jaw, the big tongue, malum body scores, those all are still very useful tools to anticipate a difficult airway. If you have a patient with trismus, which is a patient who can't open his or her mouth very wide, that means that the patient could be a very difficult airway. Airway deformity, which again could mean trauma, it could mean some sort of swelling, some sort of defect in the spinal cord that's making their airway cocked to one side. All of those things can make it very difficult, especially by obscuring your normal landmarks. Soiled airways are always something that you should approach with respect. And by soiled airways, I mean bloody airways or airways that are full of vomit or some other foreign body. 
Respect patients that you can't bag, and that could be because of a big freedom fighter beard that makes it hard to bag or some other reason why you're unable to bag the patient, because that means that if you're transitioning to a backup plan, you're not going to be able to bag them up in between. So you're going to have to work a lot faster and you're going to have a lot less margin for error. And finally, I'm going to throw in there that wearing personal protective equipment, uh, we're living in the time of COVID-19 right now. And working in a papper or wearing other protective equipment that you're not used to can take a normal airway, one that might otherwise be fairly routine, and suddenly make it a little bit more difficult. So always have respect for those airways as well. So those are the conditions that will make the actual airway procedure itself challenging. But perhaps even more important are the conditions that make it more likely that you're just going to straight up 007 kill the patient when you try to intubate them. And even if you're successful in getting tube and hole, there's a very real chance of the patient dying either during or after the procedure. And those three conditions are hypoxia, hypotension, and acidosis. So the first of those killer conditions is hypoxia. And you may be a little bit confused because you're like, well, gee, Evan, this is why we are intubating the patient, or this is why we're putting it in airways because the patient's hypoxic. Uh, of course, that's not good, but that's why we're doing the procedure. But what you need to know is if you're starting any airway procedure with a significant amount of hypoxia, you are setting yourself up for a peri-intubation cardiac arrest. And that can be from bradycardia, hypotension, uh, these patients will just collapse if they drop too far. And the reason for that is because if you look at the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, when you start getting an oxygen saturation below about 90%, the PaO2 starts dropping a lot more precipitously. And basically, if you're starting at a low O2 sat for whatever you're going to do, they're almost invariably going to drop during the procedure. And if you're on that steep part of the curve, they're going to drop like a brick thrown off a skyscraper. And it's a very high risk situation and one that you should try to prevent to the best of your ability. Now, almost all of us who are taught to manage airways are taught to put on a you know 100% non-rebreather before we consider any other procedure. And that's a decent place to start. And hopefully that'll be all you need to oxygenate and denitrogenate the patient. But in many of our sick folks, that's really not enough. And in my own clinical practice, what I typically do now is, in addition to the non-rebreather, I almost always throw on a nasal cannula that's set to you know, 15, 20 liters, whatever the wall can put out. And that is going to stay on throughout the airway management procedure, even after the mask comes off. So that gives you a little bit more oxygen flow up front. And it also gives you apneic oxygenation, which means that you're, you're pushing air down their uh, trachea even while you're doing the procedure and they're not actively breathing, which might, in theory, give you a little bit more time. So that's a decent place to start, but for many of our patients, even that's not going to be enough to fix their hypoxia. So for a lot of these patients, I'm going to consider non-invasive ventilation. Depending on what I have available, that could be a high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP as a pre-oxygenation strategy, as a bridge to intubation. Now, you'll often hear folks say that, especially with the BiPAP, that, oh, altered mental status is a contraindication to BiPAP. And like I said before about your loss of tone group, I would argue that 
Altered mental status is a contraindication to walking away from a patient on BiPAP, but that doesn't mean you can't take an abundant patient and throw them on BiPAP, especially if they're still breathing. That's going to be a lot easier to do than try to bag them along with their active breathing process, which can be a really tricky thing to do. So these patients, I'll throw them on high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP as a pre-oxygenation strategy. Now, if that's not working, because maybe the patient doesn't tolerate it, a lot of these hypoxic patients can be really agitated. Uh, I may consider a procedure called delayed sequence intubation, where I give them the first part of their RSI cocktail, usually ketamine, as a procedural sedation for oxygenation. And I'm basically giving them the drug so that they'll tolerate my pre-oxygenation procedure so that then I can safely intubate them. Now, splitting up the sedation agent or the hypnotic agent and the muscle relaxant might increase the risk of aspiration a little bit. But there's some data coming out now that says that that risk is not as bad as sometimes we used to think it was. And for a hypoxic patient, there is a very high risk of death if I let them start the procedure in a hypoxic state. So I have a very low threshold if the patient's not tolerating pre-oxygenation to consider delayed sequence intubation. And then really the nuclear option, if you have the capability, the skill set, is awake intubation. And that can be done either fiber optically, with a glide scope, or with a traditional laryngoscope. But what it all has in common is we never use a paralytic. We use some sort of anxiolysis or sedation combined with topicalization of the airway. We're going to use lidocaine, like 4% lidocaine, and nebulize it, spray it in place, and put in an airway without ever using a paralytic agent. And the reason for that is we never want to stop their respiratory drive. So this requires more skill on the part of the operator and can run you into real problems. So it's not something to be done lightly, but it could be the best choice for a patient who's profoundly hypoxic and you don't want to stop their respiratory drive. So the next one of my big killers that I want to talk about is hypotension. And this is the one that I want to footstomp for all of my special operations medics out there. This is really critically important because intubating a patient or putting in an airway with any kind of positive pressure in a patient who is in shock is extremely dangerous and should be avoided if at all possible. So why is that? So the first and most obvious is you could make a really dumb choice with the medications you use to help you manage the airway and choose something like propofol, which induces hypotension. So if they're already hypotensive and then you give them a dumb medication, you make them worse. But that's easy enough to avoid. But what I want you to realize is that when you are in shock, your body is firing off catecholamines, your epinephrine, your adrenaline, and you've got this, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, freak out going on. But that catecholamine response is helping keep your blood pressure up. And when you send that patient to Margaritaville, then you're blunting the natural catecholamine response and potentially worsening the hypotension for that reason. However, if we set that aside even, you also need to realize that the minute we take a patient who is breathing normally, who is pulling air into their chest with their diaphragm, negative pressure ventilation, and start them on positive pressure ventilation from a bag, from a ventilator, whatever we're doing to push air into their chest. What we're doing is we're increasing the pressure inside their chest, their interthoracic pressure. And when we do that, we decrease return of blood to the heart, their cardiac preload, 
which in turn decreases their cardiac output, which in turn lowers their blood pressure farther. So even if we make excellent choices about the medications we use, and even if you ignore the blunting of the natural catecholamine response, just putting a patient on positive pressure ventilation is going to worsen their hypotension. So repeat after me, resuscitate before you intubate. Now, this is something that I knew I had screwed up back when I was a medic, so I'm pretty sure there's somebody else out there who's confused by this as well. So we're taught the March algorithm where it's massive hemorrhage and then airways right up front. And then somewhere along the line, we get taught less than a intubate in all trauma patients. So somewhere along the line as a medic, I got this idea that that meant that if I could, I should do my definitive airway right up front early on in my resuscitation of a trauma patient. And that's exactly the wrong approach. Now, if you need an airway because of that obstructive group that we talked about earlier on in the podcast, then that is why the A is so far up front in the algorithm. But if we're talking about the loss of tone group, that less than eight innovate, you have tons of time typically before you have to consider managing an airway definitively in these patients. And as we just discussed, if they're hypotensive, if they're in shock from either hemorrhage or if you're talking about a septic patient or somebody else, this is equally true, then you're very likely to kill them if you try to intubate them early on in your resuscitation. So please don't be confused by the fact that A is so far forward in your March algorithm. These patients should not be intubated or put on positive pressure until they've been resuscitated unless they fall into the obstructive group that we talked about. The final group of what we call hop killers is the acidosis group. So acidotic patients are also at high risk for peri-intubation cardiac arrest. And why is that? So a lot of your acidotic patients come in with tachypnea. The prototype for this group would be diabetic ketoacidosis. So these patients come in with a profound metabolic acidosis. And when you have a metabolic acidosis, you increase your respiratory drive, you increase your minute ventilation in an attempt to blow off your CO2 to create a respiratory alkalosis to counterbalance your metabolic acidosis. So a diabetic ketoacidosis patient is going to roll through the door and they're breathing 32 times a minute with these big, deep breaths, and they're going to look like they're in respiratory distress, but they're really not. And unfortunately, if you try to intubate these patients or do some other airway maneuver and put them on a ventilator, First, you're going to interrupt their ventilation, and that may be just enough to push them from that pH of 6.8 that they were barely hanging on to down to 6.7 or something that's just going to make them code. And on top of that, your ventilator may not be able to get them to the kind of minute ventilation that they were doing on their own in compensation. So they may not code right away, but then you're going to have a miserable time keeping up. So these patients, they could be acidotic from a lactic acidosis. They could be a ketoacidosis. There are all different kinds of reasons why they might be acidotic. But what they all have in common is that they should be intubated cautiously, if at all. And I'm generally going to give somebody like a DKA patient a lot of leeway. I'm going to try to do everything I can not to intubate this patient, uh, even if their mental status, again, even if we're falling into that tone group, 
I'm just going to keep a really close eye on them, but I'm not going to intubate them unless I, they stop compensating effectively. If they start tiring out and slowing down, then at that point, your hand is forced. But before that point, you want to let them do what they're going to do. I'd also like to throw in one clinical pearl that pulmonary embolism patients are extremely dangerous to perform airway management and ventilation on. So these patients may fall into the hypoxia group, they may fall into the hypotension group, or they might not fall into either. But when you do an airway maneuver such as intubation on them, frequently the transient worsening of their hypoxia may cause even more pulmonary vasoconstriction and cause more pulmonary vascular resistance, which is going to worsen their hemodynamic status. So the pulmonary embolism patient is extremely high risk for a peri-intubation arrest and should always be intubated cautiously, if at all. So I'll give you an example case that I saw recently that I think illustrates some of these concepts pretty well. So I had an elderly gentleman brought in by EMS for altered mental status, and he comes in through the door, obtunded, he's being bagged by EMS. And my initial vital signs, he's got a heart rate of 140, and he was an AFib with RVR. Uh, his blood pressure was 80 over 40. He was being bagged at 16-ish you know, per minute. And his pulse ox was 76%. He had a fever of 102.4. And his Glasgow Coma Scale was about 5. He had an indwelling Foley catheter, and there was gross purulent drainage coming on. So it was pretty obvious from the start that this guy had sepsis from a urinary tract infection. Now, he had a GCS of 5 coming in the door. He's obtunded. And it would have been really tempting to just move on the airway maneuver right away. He's not doing that well in terms of his O2 sat. He's generally, this guy looks horrible. So what did I do? So I knew he needed to be intubated, but I didn't want to intubate him right now because he's hypotensive, he's hypoxic, and also the amount of time it took for him to get to this kind of state I figured he'd probably also be acidotic, and I found out later I was right. So what did I do? I started his fluid resuscitation for sepsis, getting multiple large bore lines, and got lactated bringers on board as quickly as I could. I started levofid early on in this patient as a way to stabilize him, really after the first liter of fluid. So I'm really aggressively trying to fight that hypotension that he was brought in with. As far as the oxygenation goes, he was pretty obtunded, but I he was trying to breathe on his own. He just wasn't doing a very good job, and the bagging wasn't very synchronized with it, and I don't think they had a peep valve on the BVM, so things weren't going great. So I had RT put him on BiPAP as a pre-oxygenation strategy while I was doing everything else, and I was able to get SATs well up into the high 90s on BiPAP, so that was really successful. And I even, I got an arterial line so that I could watch his blood pressure in real time and did everything else to get this guy optimized before the airway procedure that I knew was coming. And the other thing I had on hand is I mixed up something called push-dose epinephrine to augment the levofed that was already on board. And push-dose epinephrine is a sort of presser in a pocket. It's a little bump that you can give a patient if they have a dip when you do an airway procedure or anything else. And the way you take it is you take a code cart dose of epinephrine, the 1 to 10,000, and you put one cc out of that uh, 10 cc syringe, 
into a saline flush that you've squeezed a cdc out of so you've diluted by a factor of 10. and that gives you a solution of 10 micrograms per milliliter of epinephrine and you can give that one or two cc's at a time every three to five minutes and it's sort of like having a presser in a syringe and it can be very useful for airway management because in a case like this where i know he's already kind of shocky well, more than kind of and even though I've already got him on Levofed, he may have a quick dip after I intubate him. So I'm going to have that on hand just as a way to augment the presser that I've already got. So finally, after probably about 45 minutes to an hour of resuscitation, I finally intubated this gentleman without any great difficulty. But he had every single one of those three factors that could have predisposed him to dying if I'd tried to innovate him early on, despite his profoundly altered mental status. So I'll reiterate that hypoxia, hypotension, and acidosis are all conditions that predispose a patient to perinnovation cardiac arrest, along with the specific condition of pulmonary embolism being a high-risk situation for any kind of airway management. So this next section is near and dear to my heart, and that's PACE plans. So a PACE plan is a series of backup plans. It stands for Primary, Alternate, Contingency, and Emergency. And those of you who are in the military, this should be a very familiar concept. Now, most of us are not applying that to our airways, and we should be. So there are a lot of different ways that you can get an airway. You can do traditional laryngoscopy, video, you can use a bougie, superglottic devices, you can use fiber optic devices, you can use lighted stylets, blind digital, crikes, trachs, and there's even this crazy study that I found or case report where some anesthesiologist used a guy who'd had prior facial surgery and they intubated him through his eye socket. He didn't have a right eye anymore. And there's a funny picture, you can look it up online. But anyway, there's 8 million different ways that you can get a definitive airway. And if you only have one tool in your kit bag, that's probably not enough. You should always have multiple different ways to get from point A to point B. And you should have a backup plan. You may not always be able to get all the way out to C and E for everything. But you should always have a backup plan, always have a, a knowledge of where you're going to go if things start going sideways. And while I was preparing this podcast, I was talking with Dennis about RSI and how much we should address it. And we're really kind of moving away from innovation for most of our combat medical providers. And he said something very wise, which is, well, you know, RSI is kind of like sex. If you don't talk to your medics about it, then, well, somebody else is going to talk to them about it. So I want to take a minute to talk about why we've moved to Crike first for the military combat medicine population and why RSI should be something that really doesn't have a lot of place on the battlefield. So... First and foremost, most studies say that if you're not getting about 10 innovations a year, then you're not going to maintain your proficiency. Innovation is a very perishable skill, and it's something that has to be done repeatedly so that you're prepared, not for the, the average airway. I mean, yeah, anybody can probably do an easy airway who's had some basic exposure. What you need is the ability to adapt when things aren't going right. And that's what you get only by continued repeated experience. The other issue is paralytics are a 
terrible thing to use on the battlefield because the minute you paralyze somebody, you're completely responsible for breathing for them. And if you paralyze somebody and then all of a sudden you get caught in a gunfight and you've got to shoot back and you can't continue to bag for them or you can't continue to monitor their ventilator, then you could be consigning somebody to death. On top of that, like I said, these patients have to be bagged or vented or saved to whatever you're happening to use, but all of them are positive pressure strategies. And like we talked about in the previous section, positive pressure is a great way to kill a hypotensive patient. So the nice thing about doing a crike is you don't have to paralyze them. You have to do analgesia at most. You might consider a sedation dose of a drug to get them to tolerate the procedure, but you certainly don't have to stop their breathing. So that's a really good reason why a crike is a more desirable battlefield airway. And then finally, a crike is a lot easier skill for the traumatized airway. So most of the time, somebody comes in the hospital with maxillofacial trauma. I can still innovate them from the top because I do a heck of a lot of airways, but that requires a lot more skill. We go into that soiled airway, deformed landmarks, all those things that we had in the previous section. So a crike is going to be much easier for somebody to do in the case of maxillofacial trauma. So that's why we emphasize it for you, and that's why we de-emphasize innovation in RSI. And that's why I discourage you from considering it in any far forward, you know, tactical field care kind of scenario. Rapid sequence intubation and paralytic use should only be considered in a situation where you're fairly removed from the battle space and you've got time, you've got the expertise and experience to execute it safely, and you've got good backup plans in place. So anyway, back to pace plans. So what do I mean by a pace plan for an airway? Well, we'll start with a gentleman that I had to intubate recently, and he was in that loss of tone group. Uh, he was fairly obtunded, but didn't have any reasons why I expected his airway to be a terribly difficult maneuver. He didn't have any evidence of hypoxia, hypotension, or acidosis. So I started out with a direct regular Mac 4 blade, mostly because I was trying to preserve equipment. And then my backup plan was to move to a glide scope, which I had available and in the room. And if the glide scope were to fail, I had a King LT, a superglottic device, immediately available also in the room and appropriately sized so that if both of the previous steps failed, I had a rescue device. And then if that, for some reason, was unable to oxygenate or ventilate the patient, then I also had a crike kit available. And that's a fairly basic pace plan. And I brief this to everybody participating in the patient care. So this is an emergency department, so I've got a nurse and a respiratory therapist there with me. And I sit down and brief the pace plan. Well, don't actually sit, but I brief the whole pace plan to the team so that everybody in the room knows this is what's going to happen if things aren't going right. And that's a very important step. It's important to communicate with your other team members about what your backup plans are. Now, I can shift this pace plan and choose different items for it, depending on what sort of patient I'm taking care of. So we're living in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. So for those patients, we typically want to use video all the time to minimize exposure. So when last I intubated a coronavirus patient, my pace plan was GlideScope first, and then I had an alternate video laryngoscope with different geometry available as well. 
I had a superglottic device and again with a crike. Although this patient was a little bit different because I also wanted to minimize bagging for reasons I'll get to later in the podcast. So I probably wouldn't have used the alternate laryngoscope unless I had a really good reason for it. I probably would have moved straight to the supraglottic device depending on what the situation was because I really don't have the ability to bag in between attempts unless I want to risk aerosolizing the room and exposing people to a greater likelihood of infection. Now, an example of a contingency plan I used for a patient with a very, very dangerous airway. So I was taking care of a woman who had massive angioedema, and I'd actually already taken a look with a fiber optic scope, uh, just an NP scope, a small one, uh, through her nose and could see that the area around her vocal cords was swelling. And I knew that I had to get an airway on her quickly. So I was working with another physician at the time. This was back when I was in training, so there was an attending and available. And what we did was we planned for an awake nasotracheal fiber optic intubation as our primary method. But if that failed, we were immediately going to shift and lay the patient back, and I was going to use the glide scope and take one look while the other physician, the attending, was starting on getting the crike going. Now, when I say starting on getting the crike going, this was a patient we knew ahead of time had a very dangerous airway. So we palpated all the landmarks on her throat and used a skin marker to mark out the exact location of the cricothyroid membrane. And we had the crike kit unpacked and at bedside. We had the glide scope backup immediately at bedside. And the whole team was cautioned ahead of time that there was a high likelihood that we would need to utilize these fallback plans. So everybody was keyed up and expecting to have to shift. So what happened? Well, I went in with the fiber optic scope and it was a little bit difficult to get a view of the cords at all because she was quite anterior, but I was able to get it, but then she coughed. And I think the tip of my fiber optic scope hit around her airway and caused worsening of the swelling. And it also, I just kind of lost my place and I was really unable to get another good view of the cords. So after trying for a couple seconds to regain my view, we just said, all right, it's not happening and immediately moved into our fallback position. And I moved to the head of the bed and the attending started getting the crike together and I got one look with the glide and fortunately I was able just barely to squeeze a 6.0 ET tube in through some very swollen vocal cords and we were able to get her intubated without having to cut the neck. But we had everybody moving as a team getting prepared to execute on that pace plan and I'm very proud of how well thought through that plan was and it's probably why we were able to get the airway as successfully as we did. Now, if you're a medic and like I said, RSI might not be your bag and there are good reasons why it might not be your bag. So you still need to have a backup plan. And every time I talk to a medic about, well, what's your backup plan for a crike? Like they just look at me dead in the face and say, I'm going to get the crike. I always get my crikes. I'm a badass. And yeah, that's really not the right approach because for a variety of reasons, even no matter how skilled you are, no matter how well-trained, no matter how experienced, procedures go wrong. And most of the time, most of your patients, even if you're going in for a crike, you could probably temporize them with something like a King LT or some other superglottic device. 
So what I'd encourage you to think about as a backup plan is if you're doing a surgical crike and you start getting into trouble and the patient starts desaturating and or you're just taking too long and you're worried that you're losing that airway, consider having a superglottic device. And if you have to, you know, jam them with a whole bunch of ketamine, either you know, 200 IV, 500 IM, and use that as a strategy to help them tolerate the superglottic device. Use that as a rescue for your procedure. And then if for some reason you get that and then you need to go back and look at the crike, at least then you can try to figure out what was going wrong with your procedure and regroup and come at it with a fresh plan that's more likely to succeed rather than trying to flail about in a panic as your patient's dying, trying the same procedure over and over and over again and not getting the results you're looking for. So in that section, we talked about PACE plans, which is primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency. And we talked about how you need to be ready for things to go wrong with whatever your primary method of getting an airway is so that you can adjust fire. And this is just like if you're doing CQB and you practice for a member of your stack going down, where the team just keeps on flowing through and you fill in the gaps. So I want you always, whatever your airway management of choice is, to think about a backup plan and see if you can add additional layers to your backup plan and always strive to get to that full pace plan if it's possible. So for this last section, I want to talk about equipment positioning and confirmation of airway. So positioning is really important both for the patient and for the person executing the airway maneuver. The patient ideally should be in something resembling the sniffing position for almost any transoral, meaning through the mouth, airway procedure. And what we mean by the sniffing position, this is often explained kind of badly. So imagine that the face stays in its normal straight up and down plane, but we move the whole head forward so that the ear, the whole of the ear is in line with the sternum. So we're not tilting up, we're not tilting down, we're just moving the face forward, but keeping the same angle. And this may require different things. In an infant, this may mean you need to put a shoulder roll behind their back because their head is larger relative to the size of their body. And if you just lay them on a flat surface, their head is naturally going to tend to flex forward. On the other hand, an obese patient might need a large ramp going sort of up their shoulders to support their head because they have a lot of back fat going on. And for many patients, they may benefit from having something like a small foam donut or some other very small thing to bring their head forward just a little bit. So that's very important as far as positioning, but you also want to make sure that you're not in an awkward position or doing things from a weird angle. You want to be comfortable in terms of your height, comfortable in terms of having enough space in which to work. You also should be in a position where whatever you're using to monitor the patient, you should be able to see that. And that's something I frequently see may that's a mistake I see in the emergency department not infrequently so you should be able to see the monitor and what kind of monitoring do you really need well ideally we should really be able to monitor all of the vital signs throughout this procedure uh, now in a tactical environment that might not always be realistic but before you engage in an airway ideally one should consider having a full set of vital signs on a monitor to include pulse oximetry the other thing you want to make sure of is you want to make sure you've got a good IV or IO because it really looks 
uncool if you wind up having pushing your drugs and it's an infiltrated IV and it kind of doesn't work or doesn't work well. Uh, and the first rule of special operations medicine is always to look cool. So make sure you've got good IVs or IOs that you're using. And then you want to make sure you've got suction available. Uh, that's absolutely critical, especially for the soiled airway, but you'd be surprised how important it is in almost any airway maneuver. So again, there's really no good field suction. All of them are either heavy, clunky, they don't suck well. Uh, you know, you've got your squids and those things are okay. It's probably the best you're going to have in an aid bag, but not ideal. Um, but always try to have the best type of suction that you possibly can have before you start engaging in airway maneuvers because it's just going to aid you in visualization no matter what you're trying to do. And then airway confirmation. So every time I confirm an airway in hospital setting, every time I intubate somebody, I'm seeing the tube through the cords. We're putting color change on immediately. We are auscultating the lungs in the epigastric area and we're getting a chest x-ray. So that's four ways of airway placement. Now, again, in a field situation, that might not be realistic. But what I would encourage in this day and age, you should be using capnography, if at all possible, to confirm every airway. That should be part of the procedure. And this is something that I see a big problem with a lot of medics where the cripe procedure, they do that and then they kind of don't remember that they need to put their Emma on or they don't think about using a color change. And there have been in our community crikes that have been in the subcutaneous tissue and not placed correctly. And you need to catch that. It's a never event. And you're trained as you fight. If you don't have the muscle memory for putting some sort of capnography device on the end of the tube, then you're not going to remember it in combat. So when you're training your crikes, you should be training and placing either an Emma or if you don't want to get your Emma dirty, you can just use the disposable plastic section of the Emma uh, and use that as your mental placeholder so that you have the muscle memory of putting that on or use color change. And even if you have an Emma, I'd encourage you to have at least one color change in your kit bag as well as a backup because as we all know, electronic stuff breaks. Other things that you can consider in a field environment, you can use ultrasound to confirm tube placement, but that may be an advanced skill. And if you don't have a lot of comfort level with it, I wouldn't be relying on it. Before we close out this section on equipment, I'd be remiss in this time of the COVID-19 pandemic if I didn't talk about BSI for a moment. So, Typically in airway procedures, the minimum should be a face mask and some sort of eye protection along with gloves. However, in the case of a, a pandemic like COVID-19, this is a very dangerous, any airway management is tremendously dangerous because it represents an opportunity to aerosolize the pathogen. So the minimum you should be considering is an N95 mask full face protection, a gown, and gloves. Now, a papper would be much preferable. Ideally, your eye pro should be sealed like goggles. If you're doing laryngoscopy, you should be doing video and not direct because it'll let you be a little bit further away from the face. And if at all possible, you should be having some sort of drapes or box to help minimize the aerosolization. You should also try to minimize bagging 
and you should try to minimize disconnections. Once you get them hooked up to any kind of ventilator, you should try to minimize the amount of times that you disconnect them from that ventilator. And whatever devices you hook them up to, you should make sure they have appropriate exit filters so that you're not spewing aerosolized virus out into the room that you're in. So as we're closing out, I'm gonna put in a plug for the MCRIT Airway Management Checklist, and I'll link to it in the show notes. It's an excellent checklist, and I'd especially encourage you to consider it if airway is not something that you're doing all the time. Now, this is directed mostly at physicians operating in a hospital environment, and it's mostly focused on RSI. But you could easily adapt a list like this to whatever your scope of practice and practice environment. And if airway management is not something you're doing fairly regularly, having a checklist of all of the critical actions and pieces of equipment that you want available ahead of time can really mitigate risk before you get into a procedure and then suddenly realize that you need something in a time-sensitive fashion. So it's something that I use and it's something that I'd recommend you use or adapt for your use if at all possible. So on the podcast today, we discussed the indications for definitive airway management, which were obstruction of the airway, loss of airway tone, or the patient requiring a ventilator. We discussed warning signs that an airway might be difficult or dangerous, and those included signs like obesity or a poor malampati score, or inability to open a mouth, all signs that could indicate that an airway might be a difficult maneuver to achieve, along with hypoxia, hypotension, and acidosis, along with PE, that are signs that an airway might be very dangerous to the patient. We discussed PACE plans, that's primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency plans, for airways and why you should have a backup plan for every airway procedure. We discuss some of the critical equipment that you need in order to do an airway safely and confirm its placement regardless of the setting. I briefly discussed some of the BSI concerns associated with the coronavirus pandemic. And then finally, I talked about why I think an airway checklist is a useful tool for everyone, but especially people who don't do airway management fairly regularly. Thanks so much for spending this time with me. I'd love any feedback that you have. My contact information will be available on the Prolonged Field Care website, and I'd value any comments on how I could make a presentation like this better in the future. Please be safe out there, and de oppresso libera. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongedfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.